From hook and bullet to policy and science, we're here to discuss and dissect all matters of importance to Montana's rugged landscape and the people and wildlife that call it home. This is Montana Untamed. The mission of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is to ensure North America's outdoor heritage of hunting and fishing in a natural setting. Through education and work on behalf of wild public lands, waters, and wildlife, the National Hook and Bullet Conservation Organization has state-based chapters in all but two states nationwide. In Montana, the group advocates for protecting large parcels of backcountry fish and wildlife habitat as well as the opportunity for traditional non-motorized hunting and fishing experiences. With me today is Kevin Farron, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Regional Policy Manager for Montana, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Kevin, to start, uh, can you give us an introduction of yourself and uh, what exactly it is that you do for BHA? Sure thing, Tom. Uh, Thank you for for having me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to to join you. like you said, I'm the regional policy manager for BHA, and what that means is, you know, I, I kind of oversee our policy efforts in the three-state area. Primarily, I'm focused in Montana, um, just out of necessity, also in some ways convenience. This is this is where I live. Um, I've been here for a while. I've been working with the Montana chapter really closely for almost seven years now, and you know, I'm, I'm not the one making decisions on our policy per se. We have um, chapter boards in each each of our chapters. And, you know, those are salt of the earth, grassroots, you know, hunters and anglers that know the issues, know the local, um, you know, uh, pros and cons of certain things that we're being faced with. And they're the decision makers for our organization at the chapter level. And so a lot of what I do is kind of taking orders from our from our chapter board, um, but also, you know, helping support them and their decisions, helping provide guidance. And, you know, here in Montana, I have the luxury of, of really taping, taking it kind of a step further. You know, I'm, I'm engaging with legislatures. I'm engaging with Fish and Game Commission commissioners. And, um, yeah, so really just kind of having a, having a finger on the pulse on all things policy related for that are related to our mission. Is that relatively new for BHA to have, you know, lobbyists is not a great term. People don't love that word. But, you know, having a lobbyist in the Capitol during these legislative sessions, is that a new approach or have you guys been doing that for a while? It's somewhat new. So we actually, we do have a lobbyist here in Montana. We have for the last three sessions. That, that's not me. Um, that's that's an addition to me. So that's another thing is I, I work closely with our lobbyist. Right. Um, but some other chapters have lobbyists as well. We on staff have essentially a lobbyist in D.C. as well. You know, that's our government relations director, uh, Caden MacArthur. He's phenomenal. But he does a lot of lobbying, too. You know, I don't know if he goes around introducing himself as a lobbyist, but it's certainly something that he does. And you're right. It does, I think, have a negative perception. But the reality is that if we want to get anything done, you know, whether it's here in Helena or it's in D.C., then we need to have influential conversations with decision makers. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lobbyist does. You know, right. it, it's become a, a dirty word, I think, because people like to point out lobbyists that are advocating for things they don't agree with. But in this case, right, like I think that you would probably understand that we have a lot of people supporting what we're trying to do. And they're probably really excited to hear that we have a lobbyist working in the Capitol, and we plan to have one back for the 2025 session as well. Right. Well, and I mean, that's that's how 
you know, policies developed in the legislature and, you know what I mean, oftentimes it's enacted by the Fish and Wildlife Commission, at least that's how it works here in our state. Um, so this time next year, we're going to have a new legislative session. Um, it's going to be a Republican majority. Um, looking forward, what do you see as like the big battles, but also the, the future accomplishments um, of BHA's effort to, you know, shape policy at the Capitol? Yeah. Um, you know, it's still a little too early to tell. I think there are some constant, I, I don't know if I'd call them battles, but conversations and discussions, you know, some, some pull and pushes um, that we fully expect to to be brought back, whether those are coming from us in a proactive way or it's more of us being, you know, reactionary and kind of playing defense. But, you know, big bucket items that we look at that, you know, it's almost a certainty that we will um, see next session, but also almost a certainty that we will justify our engagement on are, you know, things to deal with public access. So whether there are legislative attempts to make legal public access harder, mm -hmm. or if there are programs, you know, that we can help support or tweak or improve that help, you know, increase public access, whether it's public access to private lands or public access to public lands, you know, those are certainly some things that we have our eye on. And there's no shortage of bills <laughs> related to public access in some way. Um, and we don't expect this next session to be any different. You know, another thing that we work on here in Helena a lot um, seems to kind of revolve around technology and hunting and where we draw the line there. And it's a super interesting conversation to have with really any hunter, you know, whether you're in a wall tent at a deer camp or you're sitting on a drift boat with someone, um, you know, hunter, you know, or angler, they all kind of have a different line in the sand that they draw as far as what they think is acceptable technology or not. And, you know, we're a group that certainly sticks up for and defends fair chase, which is a little bit different of a definition from, you know, hunting technology. And, um, you know, there's lots of overlap there, but fair chase can be an issue that isn't necessarily focused on technology, but there's some technology improvements that we look at as kind of egregious in terms of that fair chase mentality. So, you know, those are ones that we've engaged in in the previous sessions, and I'm sure there'll be more of that coming as well. Um, you know, conservation funding is a constant battle, right? I mean, that's probably the main prerogative for the legislature mm -hmm. is to figure out how we're spending our money in Montana. Right. And almost without fail on the chopping block is Habitat Montana, which is our state's best tool of keeping Montana, Montana. And what that does is it's primarily funded by non-resident uh, hunting licenses, but there's also been uh, funding mechanisms added from the uh, recreational marijuana taxes. And, you know, we, we're actually a group that didn't advocate for recreational marijuana. We, uh, you know, that's not, that's not what people expect right. us to do on their behalf, right? right? But once that passed, once that citizen's initiative passed and it became legal and there was this funding mechanism set up for a program that we care deeply about that benefits uh, landowners, that benefits wildlife, that benefits hunters, we've been doing everything we can since that moment to defend that funding. And that was one of the biggest fights where really the last two sessions is mm -hmm. to make sure we keep that. So we, you know, it's an almost certainty that that's going to be another big, another big battle. Um, you know, and then anything that deals with clean water, 
right? You know, our fisheries in Southwest Montana, especially are hurting right now. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a, I think an increased or a, a heightened focus on the need for clean, cold water. And a lot of the decisions our legislature make have impacts on that resource. Right. So, you know, those are just examples of, of ones that we'll certainly see coming down the pike that we'll definitely be engaging on. And we encourage others to as well. Right, right. Those are, I mean, like you said, like the thematic perennial issues that happen. Um, and until you start seeing some bill drafts, um, it's hard to say what exactly the next, you know, big issue is for the session. But, you know, looking back at the last session, I guess there's a lot of political observers saw last session as kind of a coalition compromise sort of session when it comes to a lot of the wild, most of the big wildlife issues. Is that how you saw the last session? Yes and no. I think there were a lot of groups that worked really hard to try to, you know, reach across the, like, I guess, traditional barriers that have been put up between different user groups or between different interest groups and try to say like, hey, we know we know that we may not agree on this one thing, but here's all these other things that we agree on. Let's work together to try to, you know, show broad support for this and that. And there were a couple of really good examples of that happening, you know, um, for one. And again, it wasn't just the interest groups in the Capitol doing that. It was PLPW, for example, in the department, you know, working together to basically um, support and help initiate the drafting of a bill that doubled the payment cap for block management cooperators, mm -hmm. right? That's something that everybody can get on board with, whether mm -hmm. you're a landowner group, you know, whether you're stock growers, whether you're outfitter, whether you're Montana backcountry hunters and anglers, right? And so we saw a lot of broad consensus around that idea. And that's, that's an example of one that we, um, you know, non-traditional partners were up there Right. one after another at the podium saying good things about that bill. And there there were some others as well. You know, I think the big theme was, hey, let's let's work on, you know, hunter behavior, right? And so of course, that's something that we we see and we we care about and we recognize that in the uh you know, the day and age that we live where we see a million acres of block management being unenrolled in the last 10 years, um is it because market forces are at play? Sure. Is there more to the story? Absolutely. And a big thing that we keep hearing from landowners that are deciding whether they want to enroll in block management or not, again, it's not about the compensation per se. I think that's part of it. That's mm -hmm. what that bill, for example, tried to do is level the playing field a little bit. But it's also about hunter behavior and right. and, and hunter ethics to a certain mm -hmm. extent, too. There's things that they're telling um, FWP that hunters are doing that are entirely legal, but really give hunters a black eye. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of disgusted by it. And so that's another thing that we tried to do last session is to focus on um, hunter behavior and trying to increase some some penalties for for trespassing or for you know um, failure to obtain permission to hunt, which is essentially anytime you're on a block management property and you're not following the rules, you could get cited for failure to obtain permission to hunt because that permission you have is given to you with the uh, understanding that you're going to follow those rules. Right. So if you break those rules, you're automatically in a violation. Right. And so, and, and we were looking at it reasonably too. Again, this is where those conversations were really helpful outside of the session because we had time to kind of hash these things out and really like lay down the, the line and say, like, you know what, like we're, we're fine with increasing these penalties. We want to send the right message. We want our own people to hold each other accountable and, and to not ruin it for everybody else essentially. But we also recognize that mistakes happen. And some of these rules are complicated and sometimes people do things uh, unknowingly, right? And so mm -hmm. we didn't want to make it uh, too harsh where we we're kind of 
penalizing the wrong people. And so our big thing was, okay, but make sure those are on second offense sort of, sort of penalties. Um, but, you know, and there were some other ones too that I think there were people in the Capitol trying to make them seem like they had this broad consensus support when in reality they didn't, you know, and, and one big one that I think divided the hunting community was about, um, you know, giving large non-resident landowners guaranteed tags in the draw. Mm-hmm. And that one, I think you can understand why that was so um, controversial. And the, the, you know, the slippery slope argument was, was present. Um, whether this is really going to fix the hunter crowding issues, is this fair? I mean, that's typically like that's BHA's standpoint. We're looking at these things. We're not trying to pick winners and losers as far as these allocations go. We just asked the question, like, is this an equitable way to allocate opportunities to hunt a public resource? Yes right, or no? Right. If the answer is no, we typically have a problem with it. Um, well, and as you're making those decisions, like with regards to this, this that you're talking about here, this, um, this, uh, the, the, um, the private landowner, these elk tags, how much does like the possibility of commercialization and the monetization of these wildlife play into that sort of litmus test that BHA is doing on whether you're supporting or not supporting policies? It's kind of, it's almost impossible to ignore that aspect of it. You know, BHA is a group that typically, you know, I I look at like hunter crowding, for example, as like a numerator and denominator issue, right? You have the number of hunters up top and on the bottom you have number of acres of quality habitat, you know, publicly accessible hunting ground. And we typically focus on the bottom number, right? Mm -hmm. Not so much fighting over who gets this or that. But where we do step in is when we feel like, A, it's not, it's not equitable. equitable. Um, and, then, and then B, you know, whether it's leading us down a path that's actually going to make the stated problem worse. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the privatization and commercialization stuff, you know, it's, it's really not us um, kind of turning up our nose at, at anything that can be looked at as privatization or commercialization. You know, let's, let's be honest, like we actually want to encourage habitat conservation and, and that takes that takes money. And mm-hmm. so if, if the, if, you know, the landowner is faced with developing their property or having an outfitter, you know, come on their property and, and make some extra money to keep that um, property, you know, within the family, we would certainly prefer the latter rather than the former. Right. Right. Over so the we're, destruction of the habitat. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's not like we're anti-outfitter or anti-gouting, you know, I, I actually would argue the exact opposite. You know, some of our biggest supporters and some of our first supporters really were wilderness outfitters and guides. Um, and what better, what better industry to create advocates than wilderness outfitters who are bringing new people into mm-hmm. these wild lands and giving them this, you know, unforgettable experience in the backcountry and telling them all about, you know, why these areas are worth protecting. Mm-hmm. Like they are some of our biggest uh, ambassadors, quite frankly. But where we kind of feel obliged to to get involved in some of these conversations, whether it's guaranteed outfitter tags or transferable or sellable tags, it's really from a standpoint of what what's the end game going to look like? And what does that mean for hunters in general? Right. Not just the hunters who can afford for these sort of exclusive experiences, but what does it mean for hunters and what does it mean for wildlife management in general? And so when we talk about 
privatization and commercialization, we're really not selling or seeing people selling, you know, an animal, right? What what they're selling is an experience Mm -hmm. and they're selling expertise and inconvenience and and all that's fine. Where it gets problematic is that they're also selling exclusivity. Mm -hmm. And that's a private land right, you know, to, to do that. But what we see happening in Montana, and this, again, it's not just because of this, right? There's lots of land ownership patterns changing. Um, it's, it's a complicated issue. But what we're seeing is lands that were typically publicly accessible, whether they're in block management or you could just knock on the door, um, are, are now being exclusively offered to the people who can afford to go pay there. Right. And the reason why, you know, those properties are so attractive is because they do have that exclusive access. That's not necessarily the best thing for wildlife management. That's not the best thing for elk distribution, for example. And so when we're encouraging that or enabling it, what we then see happening is these issues that we're also trying to to work with landowners on, namely elk distributions, right? Mm -hmm. We see those actually getting worse and worse and worse. Right. And if, you know, just I'm kind of just getting off the rails here, but if we, <laughs> but if we, you know, like looking at some of the arguments we see from going to permitted areas to unlimited tags because mm-hmm. they claim there's too many elk or we're above this socially set um, objective, the the problem with doing that is we're basically opening the floodgates to hunters on the publicly accessible areas, which elk aren't dumb, right? And so but those no. elk are just going to then find refuge on the more exclusive or the properties that allow no hunting at all. Mm-hmm. And so if we encourage those sort of changes from permitted to unlimited and in, in the name of elk management trying to get to objectives, our, you know, our worry is that we're actually going to be making this problem even worse, not, not better. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how we're looking at these things. Okay. And we, we, you know, we're offering alternatives to the table to these conversations, but um, you know, if, if, if a landowner wants to, to make some extra money by offering exclusive access to their property, you know, they have every right to do so. And, um, that's, that's not something that BHA is going to be fighting tooth and nail against, but what we're, what we are going to be doing is working on the other side of the issue as a way to make block management a viable alternative, right. Or mm-hmm. promoting some of these other programs like the unlocking public lands act or things that are going to provide more to more hunters. hundred percent. Yep. Right. Yep. So, okay. So, um, there's a couple, couple of things you touched on and I guess my next couple of questions are just kind of an opportunity to drill down a little bit more on those. Um, last session, BHA supported the banning of, uh, selling game camera pictures as scouting material, um, you know, on public land, it didn't make it through. Um, that's one example, but you know, just generally, um, the technology and, you know, the ethics of fair chase, um, there seems to be, I guess, anecdotally, there seems to be a lot of consensus on these things about, you know, these new technologies, which like you said yourself, it's really difficult, you know, it's kind of a very like, um, philosophical question as to where you like drill down on those things. So uh, tangibly, what's it going to take to get more guardrails, you know, on these, you know, every session there's like new technologies, right? So how do you bring that consensus about 
technology and its effect on fair chase into actual policymaking. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a tough one. You know, again, my my the easy answer is well, I, I yield to my board, you know, <laughs> to help me make those decisions, right? Or to, to help us make those decisions. But you know, the the one example you brought up of selling game cam picks on public lands, you know, and, and the reason we supported the bill that was yeah, trying to And I guess just to just to explain for re, for listeners, that's you know, you've got you know, game camera picture of a giant seven point bull, um, and you throw it on Craigslist, you know, selling coordinates, you know, and all the relevant information. So then somebody could go hunt that bull, you know, that's kind of the situation, um, that was trying to be regulated here. So go, go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. And so for us, we're not, we're not taking a stance saying that we are against trail camera technology. Like that's not a hunting and technology issue per se. But what we were saying is that this is clearly crossing the line of fair chase. Mm. And, you know, we, we, we want people to, to park their trucks, to hike in and to, to scout themselves. We feel like that's, that's fair chase. Mm-hmm. Fair chase is not sitting in front of your computer in Bozeman and looking and in, in having, getting into a bidding war with someone out in Glasgow to figure out where, you know, this giant four point muley is, is, is spending his time. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the behavior that we're seeing and that we're trying to prevent or to outlaw. Right. And in some ways we're trying to get ahead of this problem, but it's already here. It's happening. Yeah. I mean, we see examples of it on Craigslist. And um, in some ways, you know, it's it's pretty disgusting to see. And so, you know, and there's been other legislative attempts to try to put, you know, get a handle on these the issues. And some of them I think were a little bit too broad in how they were written. And really, you know, oddly enough, you actually had the outfitting community f- feeling threatened, and that's what kind of killed previous attempts because they were like, hold on a second, we, we kind of sell the location of some of these animals, and, and we're using pictures of these animals on, you know, that we have on trail cams and our brochures and on, you know, our Instagram pages to try to, to, try to drum up some clients. Um, would we be banned from doing that? And, you know, of course, that's not really what we were trying to stop here. It was, it was a little bit different, a little bit more egregious. Right. Um, but you know it's it's a really tough one, and there's there's plenty of other kind of fair chase or hunting and technology issues that do come up, whether it's in front of the commission, uh, or if it's in front of the legislature that we I think wisely kind of don't take a stance on. That mm-hmm. we recognize, you know, that people are going to have differing opinions on this. It's not egregious. It doesn't really cross that line that we have, and we leave it up to our members and supporters to kind of make that call. So mm-hmm. we'll explain the issue and we'll tell people how to comment and where to be to provide testimony. And let folks kind of have it out, and we'll see see where we land. Um, but that you know, that's an example of one that we have certainly put our foot down on. You know, we've worked in Montana and many other states to support bans on using drones for hunting and scouting. Mm-hmm. Just this last session, actually, there was a bill that we supported that actually kind of in like put some more teeth into that. So it's, it's been current law for a while. You can't do that, but it was kind of wishy-washy on what that meant and right. what the, what the, uh, and the I'm time sure limitation was. When it got down to the warden level, wardens were going, I don't really know. You know, like it's just having a drone in your pickup where you've got a hunter's orange vest on a violation yep. or, you know, do you have to be caught in the act flying over a bedding area, you know? Yeah, and, and more and more people are using these to, you know, to document their hunts, right? Right. And so... Are they able to use these before they hunt 
and after they hunt, right. but not, you know, while they still have that tag in their pocket. You know, these were questions that we were trying to help answer because right. the reality is that we're not anti-drone. I think they take some pretty cool pictures, actually. <laughs> but there's there's a clear violation of fair chase in our mind if if folks are out there using them to locate big game. Right. Um, or any game, for that matter. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's almost like the technology is progressing so rapidly it's really hard to keep up with yeah i mean that's like the paradox of like the technology and hunting and fishing is that it it develops so fast that by the time policy has had a time to catch up it's changed again you know and there's always this lawless isn't a good term but there's always this kind of interim period between when the technology drops and it's able to be used by a consumer or a hunter or a fisher or whatever um and in that amount of time that the policy like catches up to figure out how you regulate it, you know? And so it's just kind of this constant, you know, um, game of cat and mouse regu- from a regulatory standpoint. But at the end of the day, you know, like a hunter using, you know, like the Jim Poswitz framework of, of hu- fair chase should be able to answer these questions, whether it's, you know, whether it's legal or not on paper, you know, folks should be, still be able to make those determinations themselves, I would feel like. I would hope so, but <laughs> I I guess I don't I don't know if that's proven to be the case. Right. And the issue that we see too as far as like trying to keep up with it is when we try to get ahead of stuff, we usually get the reaction that it's like we're, we are offering a solution that's looking for a problem, mm, right? I've heard that before. Yeah, whether it's the commissioner or lawmakers, they just feel like, well, since they haven't seen it firsthand right. or heard of it, they don't think it's a problem, and they just kind of cross out the legislation and say on to the next thing. Like, don't don't bore us with this stuff that's not a real problem, right? right? But then the problem is, okay, well, now we have to wait two more years before we can talk about it again. Right. And really, it doesn't take that long to have these uses established. Mm-hmm. And once those uses are established, it's a lot harder. I mean, it's tell, two hunting seasons between legislative right? exactly. sessions. Yeah, but it's really hard at that point to tell somebody that, you know, this $1,500 piece of equipment that they bought for hunting – that they can no longer use. Right. And so it's an easy way to make people really upset, you know, and whether that's, whether that's e-bikes where people, you know, and advertisers are, are showing you, you know, the ability to use your e-bike wherever you want or your four-wheeler wherever you want. And then, and then you actually like read the regulations and realize, oh no, these are, these are motorized vehicles. I need to keep them on motorized trails. I can't do what they do in the commercial. Exactly. You know, I can't drive these, this four-wheeler wherever I want. I need to stay on these routes. Um, and I can't take my e-bike, you know, every single place that a bike is allowed. Those, you know, I, I would be upset too if I were in those shoes. But right. And that's like, that's current law and regulation. That's just kind of a misinformed user group. But in other situations where there is no law on some of this technology, I think that they have every right to be upset if that's then trying to be taken away from them. Right. So, you know, if, if there's any uh, decision makers out there listening, I would I would encourage them on the uh, the hunting and angling technology issues and fair chase issues. You know, I would I would really discourage that immediate kind of reaction of um, you, know, you know this is a a solution looking for a problem because that's when we have to address these things because mm-hmm. if not, it, it almost becomes too late. I mean, I was just at an event this last weekend where one of the vendors is is showing off their hunting scope that's infrared. Yeah, not and in Montana. Not, well, it's not legal in Montana, but um, the, it's still, it's one of those areas that it's like really wishy-washy, right? right? It's not legal for hunting. Okay, well, if I'm using it in the morning when it's dark out, uh, am I am I hunting at that point? It's not even legal hunting light. Right. And so, or how about the day before? You know, right. when I'm watching animals bed down or get out of their bedding area, what then? You know, mm-hmm. what's the difference between 
I don't know. It's just there's a lot of these areas that I think we need to button up. And, you know, and there's also just there, we hear stories of areas that are just not being patrolled. Um, and that's that's a whole nother issue where we just need more law enforcement on some of these things, mm-hmm. education and law enforcement. But, yeah, you know, fair chase and, and hunting technology and, and fishing technology. I mean, drones and fishing is another one. right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Right. We we don't think about it much here in Montana, but. I've seen plenty of videos where they're using drones to to find spawning areas, mm-hmm. and they're trying to like target in on a big old brown trout that they can see from from above. Right. And in the Columbia, they're using them to to drive out to the middle of the, drop, the waterway and drop, drop bait. bait. Yeah. yeah, which is way further than a human could ever cast. Correct. Yeah. And you know, before that, they were using remote control boats to do the same thing. Right. And so there's just a lot of those again. And I'm not saying that BHA has a stance on every one of these things, but I'm just saying they're super interesting conversations and. As these new technologies develop and are starting, you know, to, they're they're starting to realize other uses for them in the field. I think it's important for all hunters and anglers to pay attention and ask yourself, you know, what are what are you okay with personally? And also, like, if we don't draw the line somewhere, where do you think this technology is going to go? And right. what is that going to mean for the resource, most importantly? But what is that going to mean for your experience and your kids' experience? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a super tricky one, and I don't see that conversation ever going away. I, I see it actually ramping up. Yeah, and it'll just be a new thing yep. every time, yep. every session. Okay, so um, you made mention of this, but I think uh, this is a big, big topic of debate. Um, it, hunter overcrowding on public lands, I think every session, you know, everybody's talking about it. How does BHA see this? I, if If you guys even do see this as a problem, how do you see it in – what are some possible solutions to um, what is a big complex issue of hunter overcrowding on public lands? Yeah, I mean, I think we could have a whole podcast just on this one topic because I do think it has so many inputs and outputs to to consider. It's not it's not just uh, you know hunting media's fault. Um, right. It's not just Onyx's fault because now everybody can see where they can and can't hunt. It's not just Go Hunt's fault because now the the really complicated process of applying for tags sure. and draw odds it's, it's been demystified, right? Yes. So now everybody, you know, right. can can understand and navigate that stuff, and therefore there's more competition. Right. Um, it's yeah. The conceptual and the knowledge access is so available there yep. for hunting these days, given yep. all, all these things you just announced. But then there's like this physical access issue you know, that maybe doesn't grow as much. Anyway, keep, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. And again, I think it's, I'm going to, I'm going to talk more about that physical part of it. Like the, again, the denominator part, which is where we spend most of our time at BHA. But I did want to at least acknowledge the top line, you know, the, how many hunters and and what's, what's creating that. Right. Because I think a lot of people in the hunting community right now like to point fingers at um, hunting TV and hunting celebrities and, and glorifying and in some ways maybe cheapening what that hunt looks like. Right. When they go, take a six day, you know, filmed hunt and, and turn it into a 22 minute feature film mm-hmm. that just shows all the highlights. And it ends with five minutes of different viewpoints of a big giant bull. Right. Uh, I don't know anybody who wouldn't watch that and go, I want to do that. Right. So I think there's something to be said about all of these things. Um, whether it's YouTube or like I said, some of those services that tell you where you can hunt and, you know, there's a YouTube video that does you know, one YouTube video nowadays can outcompete every single state fish and game agency's R3 efforts across the board, mm-hmm. right? Like that sort of 
knowledge, having it at your fingertips on your phone um, is a game changer in terms of how many people are hunting and who those hunters are. Um, so it's just, it's important to recognize kind of all of the factors. And we, you know, typically, again, aren't going to come out like boycotting certain things, because I think at least for me, you know, the attitude I have is like, what, what good is that going to do? Are we going to be able to get that cat back in the bag? If for whatever reason, you know, we were able to boycott X company, don't you think another company is just going to take their spot? If one, you know, social media influencer, uh, gets a, you know gets enough people to unfollow them that they become obsolete. Don't you think there's going to be three other you know social media people who kind of take their place? Mm-hmm. Like people have liked looking at gripping grins on magazines, on brag boards at sporting goods stores, in newspapers. You know, for as long as there's been c- cameras in capturing the, those, right? right? And so I don't think we're going to be able to change that reality. Instead, and and also like. It's not even just like because we can't fix that problem, but really where, where BHA's focus has always been mm-hmm. is more so on the denominator of the hunter crowder issue, right? Not number of hunters necessarily, but where can these hunters go? Mm-hmm. So it's not just the number of acres of publicly accessible lands, again, whether it's private lands or public lands. I think that's a huge, that's like the first big thing that we work on. But it's also what does the habitat look like on those areas? You know, we stand up for for things in forest planning like elk security standards to make sure that we're not just going and, and clear cutting, you know, all the properties 200 yards from from a road um, and making it a whole lot easier for, for road hunters to go through there and push out all the game. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's a lot of studies shown that in areas that there's not good cover and there's not good security habitat, you know, after that first weekend or even before that first opening weekend, when people start to set up their tents and start driving around, that all the big game kind of jump ship and, yep. and find refuge elsewhere. Big time. And so we need to make sure that we don't just have publicly accessible areas, but these publicly accessible areas actually continue to hold game. Right. And so we work a lot on, you know, habitat protections and making sure that, you know, wildlife uh, standards and wildlife considerations are made in addition to, you know, when we look at travel management and things like that. Now, how do we get the people around there in a way? And that's another thing. Travel management is a great example. Like we're we're a group that's probably not going to be advocating for three or four roads that all start in the same place and end in the same place, but they just, you know, all run a half mile apart. You know, we would look at that and say, maybe we don't need four, maybe we need two. And if we do that, we can still cover the same ground in our rigs and, and get off at all these different jumping off points. But maybe the game that's there will actually stay there now. Um, rather than jump and chip before the season even starts. Right. So that's those are kind of the ways that we attack the hunter crowding issue. It's not it's not about banning certain hunters. It's not about making anything that's unlimited go to to draw or to permits. We just try to focus on how can we you know stop people from pulling out of block management, right? And we look at that as well. We can we can do that by paying block management cooperators more and recognizing, you know, the, what they offer. We can also work on hunter ethics and hunter behavior. We can work with FWP to increase, uh, you know, penalties for, for people who aren't following the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are all examples of how we try to protect access. And there's also just programs and, and issues and areas that we see where people are blocking public access. And a lot of times we feel that's being done illegally. Mm-hmm. And that's something that else we did last session is we worked with 
Representative Green, um, and we introduced legislation to take the current fine for illegally blocking a public road, and we increased that 10 times. Mm-hmm. We actually started the process trying to increase it 50 times, but we uh, we had to kind of meet some folks <laughs> in the middle and, and bring that back down a little bit. But the point being that, you know, we're trying to address these public access, you know, that denominator issue really from all angles to help with that hunter crowding. Mm-hmm. So um, because we do agree that it's an issue and, you know, it's, again, it's kind of like that fair chase conversation where everyone has a different line in the sand, depending on who you talk to, they're going to have a different idea in their heads as far as how many hunters this landscape can, um, you know, can hold for that experience that they're after. Everyone's answers will be a little different, right? You know, mm-hmm. whether it's the the father trying to go out with his daughter just to get their, you know, the first white-tailed doe, or if it's the hunter who just burned 15 points looking for, you know, 180-inch buck, everyone's going to have a different opinion on what that looks like. And so that's not really our place to say, like, what the ideal number is. Um, we we kind of look to the biologists to say, well, what can the resource withstand based on the harvest rates? And, you know, so we, we kind of, like, pause on that on that side of the equation, but instead focus on that, that bottom denominator and figure out, you know, what's, what's a way we can just make more of it. Mm -hmm. How how can we make more of it? Whether it's private land that is now enrolled in a conservation easement that requires public access or doesn't, you know, conservation easements are great either way, or is it advocating for the land and water conservation fund and making sure that that's fully funded at the federal level. So these federal agencies actually have money to acquire high value lands that open access or that offer phenomenal habitat, you know, which is something else that BHA does. And the state level comparison to that is that Habitat Montana program that we talked about right. that is used to both acquire properties for FWP, like the Big Snowy's Wildlife Management Area, um, which was, which was you know, the, we cut the, the ribbon on that just, just last year, or conservation easements where landowners, you know, get to have their working lands remain in the property or in, in the family, they're, they're still private lands. They continue to, to either farm them or, or run cattle on them, but they kind of sign away their development rights and they say they're gonna leave it as is, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's great for Montana, right. and, but it also comes with an access requirement that public access must be provided and a certain number of hunter days has to be provided. It's all part of that contract. And so that's a really good way to, to address the hunter crowding issue because you're increasing that denominator issue or that denominator number pretty substantially. And that's a situation where we feel like, you know what, we can actually have an impact in that bottom number. It's kind of out of our hands, that top number. Right. And we don't feel like we're the group that should be making those calls. So with the, with the issue uh, or the perceived issue of hunter overcrowding, there seems to be kind of a paradox, I guess, where, you know, it, you talk to hunters in the West and they talk about, you know, overcrowding as being a huge issue. But then when you look at some of the national numbers on hunters, hunters hunting seems to be in decline, right? Um, so, like, how do you guys see, like, this conversation about, you know, you know, the, 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 the like, how do you square that paradox, right? That... In some parts of the world, we have too many hunters and, you know, studies show us that elsewhere in the in the United States that we have less hunters or we don't have enough hunters or not that we don't have enough hunters, but that hunting is declining. Yeah. Um, 
couple different things to point out here. So, so for one, the the hunter numbers is a really interesting one because I think it, I think people will use it to justify whatever side of this argument that they want to be right. on. Okay. Um, so the people that don't want to see hunting opportunities limited whatsoever will point to you know national numbers that that show that hunter numbers are are declining and a big problem. On the other side of the coin, you have folks who are complaining about hunter crowding, um, trying to say, well, yeah, but that's not that's not here. That's not in this state. That may be somewhere else, but it's certainly not here. And there's also so much data out there that's kind of conflicting because of how complicated the license process is. And in some ways, because we're not doing like mandatory reporting here in Montana, mm-hmm. and we're not asking the questions that we need to be asking. You know, for example, when a non-resident buys a deer at Elk Combo, um, with that, is their upland upland bird license? Okay, so do you know? Do we have a good handle on whether that person's actually hunting upland birds? Right. Are they making separate trips here because of this? Um, how many you know are they taking? Like, and there's some questions that we'll ask on the the phone surveys, but they're imperfect at best. And there's a lot that we can do on the data collection side to help get a better handle on this issue specifically. But I do think it's important for regional differences to be to be recognized and respected. And so, you know, I grew up in northern Michigan. So I moved out west right after college. I've been in Montana, you know, the last eight years or so. And it's just funny when we talk about a hunter, you know, distribution and 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 how many hunters a 200 acre parcel can withstand in northern Michigan, you know, that's super timbered versus a 200 acre parcel out here that if you have more than two, you know, one hunting group, like you're going to ruin it for their people just because of the landscape out Mm -hmm. here and because of how big game react to any sort of pressure. And so it's a completely different conversation as far as, um, you know, how much pressure can we withstand based on what that landscape looks like. And so that's another important consideration. Um, there's a lot of focus in Montana on non-residents versus residents, right? Right. That was going to be my next question. Okay. How, how, you know, that's a huge topic of debate, non-residents and resident hunters, who gets what? Yeah. How do you guys, where do you see yourself in that conversation? Well, and I just think that it's, it's really easy to say there's a problem, but I'm, I'm not the problem or, you know, I'll be damned if you try to limit my opportunities or my hunting traditions with my family every single year. And so the easy way is just to point the finger and say, well, let somebody else take, you know, make a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I think what we saw happening here in Montana or what we see happening here in Montana is that there's a lot of ideas being thrown around, whether it's a pick your weapon sort of scenario or shorter seasons or not being able to hunt mule deer in the rut um, or, uh, you know, you have to pick a district rather than being able to hunt the majority of the state. And all of those, I think, deserve consideration. For sure. But I think the argument coming from resident hunters in Montana is like before we have any of those conversations, before residents are forced to make these sacrifices, let's let's take a look at non-resident allocations and what we're allowing there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's no secret that Montana BHA actually introduced legislation last session to kind of force that conversation. You know, we were very careful to say like, hey, we are not the qualified you know, voice to, to like say what a reasonable number of non-resident hunters in Montana, you know, per species looks like. We also don't feel like the legislature is the right decision-making body for that um, issue either. And so what we did actually, because, you know, previous 
for years and years, previous um, attempts to try to address this issue, it just, the can just kept get, getting kicked down the road. No one wanted to make that decision. No one really wanted to address it. And so we introduced legislation that just simply said, hey, it's time to have this conversation. So if the legislature would have passed that bill, it would have directed the Fish and Wildlife Commission to look at all of the unlimited opportunities that non-residents currently have in Montana and talking with you know the biologist and the, and the staff at FWP put forward a proposal to offer a reasonable cap for each one of those things. And that cap could have been 10 times the current use. It could have been a reduction. It could have been exactly the same. That's not our call. And we weren't advocating for any of those necessarily. We were just saying, hey, let's have a conversation. And this seems like the best way to address it. Mm -hmm. Because what we recognize is that, hey, you know, some of these other proposals we'll, we're seeing, whether they're in front of the commission or they're in front of the legislature, are things that we're not convinced are really going to solve this, this problem that we keep hearing about. And I'll just throw out a couple examples. You know, if we were to make an area that is unlimited, if we were to make that permitted, you know, for one, outfitters and guides are, are really going to lose their minds over that because right. that makes it a whole lot harder for them to conduct their business with any, um, with any, like consistency, right? And Planning, so, foresight, exactly. What's going to be it really complicates things. Yeah. And so, generally speaking, they would prefer, you know, the over-the-counter kind of unlimited opportunities, um, which is understandable. But besides that, we also look at that and say, hold on, we, here are all these examples of elk districts already, where they're permitted, and we have examples of ones that have moved to more liberal harvest, whether that's adding more permits or making turning it into an unlimited or going the other way. And it really hasn't fixed the issue of elk distribution because at the same time, we're not addressing the fact that the bird hunters are unlimited in that same area. The, you know, in a lot of cases, the doe harvests are unlimited. The cow bee tags are unlimited. Mm -hmm. And it's not just for residents, but for anyone across the country. And in some of these areas, they can get up to three elk tags per person, mm -hmm. and they can hunt for up to six months a year, right. often on public and private lands. And so we looked at that and just said, hold on, this doesn't make sense to reduce you know, the number of permits or to make a, an area go from unlimited to a permit area if we're not addressing the fact that there's all these other unlimited options at the same time. And that elk or deer that's running for cover, he doesn't know what if you have an upland bird tag in your pocket or if you're just walking around with a cow bee tag. Right. It's hunting pressure period that needs to be looked at. So we were trying to take a more holistic view. And we had a lot of data to back up that like it was time to take a look at that. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't get anywhere. And so what you see, what, what the other things being considered at the legislature, I just feel like we're a little bit more short-sighted that weren't really addressing the holistic problem that we were facing. Um, and those were, okay, let's, let's instead, let's limit non-residents to two weeks. Let's move the upland bird, you know, dates back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let's make non-residents pick their weapon. Let's make them pick their area. You know, there's all these other area, uh, there's all these other ideas being thrown out, which again, I think every single one deserves consideration. But if, if a non-resident or resident is forced to pick a unit or to pick a weapon, 
is that going to solve the problem if there's still an unlimited number of bird hunters and fall bear hunters and right. doe hunters and, and cow bee hunters out there at the same time? So I, that's all we're trying to, to do is force the conversation and say, hey, we need to look at this big picture, which is hunters on the landscape at these times. And we're, we're not going to claim to know the answer, but we, we, we trust the process right. to find what would be a more reasonable solution. And it's not unheard of, right? We did this a couple of decades ago when it came to deer and elk for non-residents, right? Those are capped at right. a certain number. It's unlimited for residents in Montana, but it's not unlimited for everybody outside the state. And I think everyone can acknowledge that doing so would just be unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if Montana continues to grow at the pace it is, maybe in 10 years we'll be back at this table talking about how residents, you know, can't be unlimited on these things too. Right. I certainly hope not. Yeah. But if we don't get a handle on something and right. we don't continue to work on the denominator of the issues, I think it's, you know, in some ways unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So back to the access side of the work that, that you guys do, uh, conservation projects like easements and others aimed at increasing access are a big part of your mission. Um, given the makeup of, you know, the land board, is it more difficult now? Um, do you have concerns about the viability of these projects moving forward? with the land board in its current and probable future makeup? Yeah, so for one, conservation easements can take a lot of different forms, right? There's a lot of good local land trusts across the state doing really, really good work to mm-hmm. put as many acres as possible under conservation easement. And again, like I said, that's that. those are our best tools of keeping Montana, Montana. Um, the ones, you know, and, and we like to, to, to celebrate those and, and give credit whenever we can on those. But really those those sort of, um, you know, regional land trusts doing really, really good work are usually not ones that we engage in. Um, or if we do, it's really just a pat on the back at the end of it because we didn't need to help get it, right. you know, approved or anything like that. Exactly, right? But when it comes to, to state ones, you know, using Habitat Montana money, those conservation easements are a much – longer process there's there's definitely opportunities for public comment and as an advocacy group you know we call ourselves the voice for our wild um, public lands waters and wildlife like that's what we try to do is to get people to use their voice to support programs and opportunities you know to forward conservation initiatives to uh, keep wild lands wild and whenever possible to try to you know create more public access and, and public opportunities so you know i don't think that I don't think the land board necessarily are to blame for very few projects um, moving in the last in the last four or so years. Hmm. Um, and I say that because I can only think of a couple that have come to them and they have approved them. So namely the big snowies. So it's not Habitat Montana dollars are not used just for conservation easements. They can also be used for acquisitions. And right. the big snowies was was a really big one, a new wildlife management area um, in an area that's super elk rich. You know, it, it, it touched into over 100,000 acres of existing public lands and created another really important access um, point from the south end of that range. And that was one that um, the land board approved. I think that one was four to one. The other big one that I can think of is the Mount Hagen Wildlife Management Area. So that's that's an existing wildlife management area, and there's a big addition that was proposed, and that was um, approved three to two. But the new thing, um, as of the 2021 session, 
or yeah, 2021 session, I think is when they made this change is that now, um, any of these easements that are over a certain dollar value or a certain acreage component, um, have to get land board approval as well. Right. And honestly, like I can't think of any last few years that have gotten to that point that have gotten the thumbs down from the land board. So I don't want to unfairly place blame on the land board members for doing that. Now they have signaled, you know, um, where their appetite is and where their appetite isn't for projects like this. I will say that. But I think that, you know, when you look at um, where these projects are kind of stumbling, it's way earlier in the process. And I, I'm not going to claim to to really do anywhere near the job that Andrew McKean did on this issue, but he wrote a piece in Outdoor Life a number of years ago called, you know, Montana's on the brink of, you know, killing one of its best conservation programs or something like that. I forget the name of the the actual article, but it's a phenomenal read that really kind of um, takes a deep dive into where these projects are are falling um, by the wayside. And it just seems to be a lack of appetite from this you know, this administration or this legislature uh, to to really take on as many of these as possible. And we've heard a lot of complaints that, well, it takes takes properties out of the tax base or, well, you know, the government owns too many lands, yada, yada, yada. But we look at this and say, you know what, like these are exactly the sort of things we should be supporting right now because it does keep working lands on the landscape. It does allow Montana to, to remain Montana. Um, it does work on the hunter crowding denominator issue by providing more publicly accessible acres. Um, and we think all of those are, are really important. And, you know, to the argument that it takes tax revenue away, you know, those lands are, they're, they're still paying taxes on those lands. Mm-hmm. It may be a slightly reduced rate because the development, you know, value of that property goes down. But what is not considered, I think, in that kind of narrow way of looking at these things is, well, that gas station down the road and that diner down the road and that hotel down the road, you know, they're actually paying more taxes because of the added business that they're getting from the publicly accessible opportunities that these sort of programs are creating. Right. And so we want to make sure that we're looking at this a little bit more holistically and bigger picture and not get so focused on, you know, just the the deeded land tax revenue potential um, that could get cut a little bit if, if a habitat Montana or any conservation easement is thrown on that property. And also let's just, let's just also remember that there's a lot of other valuable places in Montana that are being developed or that already have been developed. And quite frankly, those wouldn't have the same value they do now if everything else looked like that, right? Mm -hmm. The reason people want to move here, the reason people want to come here and hunt and fish and spend their vacation time and their hard-earned money, it's because we still have wild places, whether those are public places or private places. We still have, you know, cattle on the landscape. We still have big game running around. Um, We still have clean water that hold fish. And the more of that we can conserve, the better that is for Montana, for the people that live here, the people that want to come recreate here, and for Montana's economy. So mm-hmm. I just think we need to look at it um, a little bit you know, further down the road and a little bit bigger than just that deeded parcel. Right. And, and so that's why we're, we're such advocates of you know, conservation projects like that. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder to deny you know, those sort of ancillary economic boosts that visitation, hunting, fishing, and other recreation brings to the state, you know, as we see tourism dollars ratcheting up and up and up and up, you know, in the standings. Um, yeah. And just, just one more thing about that too, you know, as this, this battle kind of plays out, 
in the legislature about this Habitat Montana money. Again, I said that it's it's funded primarily by non-resident hunting licenses, which is true. But once that um, citizens' initiative to recre- or to legalize recreational marijuana passed, they created an, an entirely new influx of cash for this program. Big time. And the governor, um, who to his credit has had some really good votes on the land board, loves to celebrate the big snowy's acquisition. I just heard him talk about it at an event just last week. Yep. You know. Um, and, and he deserves credit. Like, he was a big champion on, on both of those things because he has a seat on that land board, right? Um, but it, I think, he, and I'm, I may be oversimplifying it, but his argument, and he vetoed a bill this session, Senate Bill 442, that would have set aside uh, a big chunk of that Habitat Montana, or sorry, of that recreational marijuana tax for Habitat Montana as the, the voters intended, as was passed in the 2021 session as well. And 442 was widely supported in both chambers. It was something like 86% of lawmakers, and that's including Democrats, Republicans, that's in the House, in the Senate, you know, which is which is pretty unheard of for, for a bill of that size, um, you know, especially when it comes to, to funding a lot of different programs to have that broad support. It was a it was a great compromise. And yes, the governor vetoed it. Um, and that alone was controversial, because the governor obviously has the right to veto anything that they wish to veto. Right. Um, but what happened there was the governor vetoed it in the last day of the legislature. Mm-hmm. And what happens when the bill is is vetoed is the you know the legislature has the ability to override that veto with right. a two thirds vote. Which if you look at how many people voted for it in the first place, had the votes. It certainly had the potential to do that. Right. right. Um, and. The lawmakers were upset because they never were given the opportunity for that poll override, and they claim they didn't realize the governor vetoed it. And just, you know, a few hours later, or even less than that, um, the session was adjourned. Right. And so then we have a situation where the governor's saying, I, I vetoed this bill. It was it was during the session. Mm-hmm. You guys had the opportunity to override it. You didn't. And the legislator's saying, well, we didn't know. How are we supposed to have that vote if we didn't even know? Which this was this just finally ironed out, didn't it? Kind of. So it was challenged um, legally, right? And the ruling was that yes, it was an unconstitutional maneuver, and so the so it'll go to a veto override vote, or have they done that yet? They have not done that yet, and as far as I know, um, the holdup is around whether this decision is going to be appealed or not. Oh, I see. So it's not quite done. Um, right. Without getting too far into the weeds on it, like right. that's kind of the simple way to it understand it. It might go to the at. Supreme Court, not just a district court. Rule. It may, yes. And okay. so you know, or or the the poll overrides may go out. So right. we'll we'll see. But anyway, that I think what I was going to try to say, like, I think that <laughs> that story is important because that's really where we're at, like right now. But in his defense, I think that what the governor is saying is that hey, we already have enough money in this program. We can't even spend the money we have. Why would we use more money, you know, putting it, putting it aside for this program? Into Habitat Montana, you're talking. Correct, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have conservation groups and hunters and landowner groups and landowners saying, well, the reason why you're not, you have all this money that you're not spending is because you're not listening to the people that are saying, hey, we'd like to talk. We'd like to consider right. putting our property into a conservation easement. There's just not that appetite. They're, they're, they're getting... Uh, no, no calls back. You know, um, these these projects are not getting elevated to the point where they're even being considered by the mm-hmm. Fish and Wildlife Commission, which happens before the land board, and and so that's the problem we're running into. And and if we if we enable that by saying, okay, you don't need this money, 
and we don't kind of try to stop this at some point, um, we just see this turning into a downward spiral where less and less money is being spent, then less and less money is you know, being advoc- uh, uh, allocated to the program, right. and then therefore less and less money is being spent. And before you know it, like all that means is that less of Montana is being conserved and less habitats being protected and less access is being opened up. And mm-hmm. so we don't, you know, we want to, we want to be that stick that we're putting into the bicycle spokes to stop that from happening and say, no, 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 we want this thing to be funded well. Right. And we want to encourage these things and, and let's, let's, use let's see this. more of it. Yeah, right. for sure. Right. And so, and there's, there's a lot of flexibility built into those things. They still allow grazing, um, you know, the big snowies wildlife management area, like it actually had a requirement to allow grazing in perpetuity on that property. Mm-hmm. So there's flexibility to keep these as working ranches, whether they are still remaining in private hands or like the big snowies, or they're going to be owned by the state. Transferred to the state. Yeah, there's there's a lot of flexibility. And in some ways, it's just kind of a shame that we are having these conversations because um, we should be encouraging this left and right as far as I'm concerned. Right. And and in some ways, we're having to like fight it tooth and nail. And that that's really hard to see. Mm-hmm. So uh, BHA secured the Montana governor's mule deer tag. We did, yeah. Uh, so this is usually sold at auction to the highest bidder, um, but you guys are doing it a little bit differently um, than I've seen done before. It's a raffle. Can you, I guess, give give listeners just a quick little primer on what the governor's tag is for those that don't know, um, and then, you know, why this approach? Yep. So for anyone listening, you know, Big game in Montana are very highly controlled as far as how many opportunities they give out. Um, there's more opportunities for things like deer and elk, um, but things like moose, sheep, and goat are really controlled and really premium and, and hard to draw. And then with deer and elk, even you have a bunch of districts across the street that are super coveted, limited entry, and those are um, done either from a management perspective or just because they want to offer different sort of opportunities to hunters right. where it's not just like going to fill your freezer on a little rack. Trophy management. Yeah, you could have the opportunity in a few different areas in Montana to get, you know, a, a 350 bull. Right. And and so what the um, what the state does is they allow one tag for each of those five species, so moose, sheep, goat, uh, mule deer, and elk, to, to be sold that's valid anywhere across the state, so any of those highly coveted areas, for any open hunting season, any weapon. So it's a pretty premium opportunity, right? Pretty premium. And the uh, and it goes to habitat organizations. It does. Or it goes to wildlife conservation organizations. It go like conservation organizations are giving are given the opportunity and responsibility to, to use that to raise money. Right. The money entirely goes back to FWP. Mm-hmm. What's really unique is that the money is earmarked for conservation and the benefit of that specific species. That particular species that the tag is good for. Exactly, right. which is unlike any other tag income or or even the super tag, which is a, yet another set of very similar opportunities that are statewide that you can go buy you know, a $5 chance on FWP's website for those, but that money goes towards law enforcement and to public access, two great programs. Mm-hmm. But what's different with these statewide um, opportunities is that, you know, the one that we have for mule deer, every single penny raised goes back to, to mule deer conservation and benefits. And, um, that's just unique. And then when we look at, you know, the state of mule deer in Montana, it's kind of really needed right now. Mm-hmm. So anyway, those five opportunities traditionally, like you said, have always gone, um, to these conservation orgs who then use them as an auction. 
So basically you go to a banquet and you raise your hand if you have the money to, to, to play that game and whoever's hand is left standing at the end, they get that tag. With moose, sheep, and goat, there's no flexibility. The way the statute's written, they have to be auction tags. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. We noticed that when you actually read the the language, um, the that there's flexibility with both the elk and the mule deer tag. Those can be done via auction or raffle. It's never happened, but there's flexibility there. Right. So going back to 2022, really, we pitched the commission on letting us have a chance to show that there's a different option here that right. we can, we can try to raise the, Oh, that was part point. of your guys' application to the commission was, it was to do it raffle style. It was. Oh, yes. Okay. And so we, um, we were, we were given the no vote, uh, in 2022, mm-hmm. which would have been for the 2023 tag. Right. So we came back again a year later with basically, uh, the same, but refined pitch and tried it again. And we struck a chord and the commission was intrigued. Um, specifically Commissioner Burroughs um, down in Region 2. He deserves a ton of credit because he he spoke up in defense of it and basically shrugged his shoulders and said, why not? Let's let's give it a shot. Let's see. And I think he recognized that, you know, we're, we're in a day and age now where we can sell these sort of opportunities online and we can promote it to people all across Montana, all across the country, really. Mm-hmm. And we can do it in a way where everybody – you know, you and I, Tom, can can spend twenty dollars. Right. We can either go to the bar for this and have a couple beers, or we can put in for a statewide Montana Mule Deer Lottery. Right. And we just love the, you know, the optics of that. We think it was the right thing to do when it comes to allocating our public wildlife. And so we we fought really hard to kind of pitch the commission on that on that idea. And in the end, they they said, "All right, show us that'll work." I think there were a couple. Well, I know there were a couple that voted against it that were really skeptical, that didn't think we would be able to raise anywhere near the amount of coin. Yeah, because that, that's that's kind of the gamble is, is yes. is it going to fundraise as much as one of those auctions will? And if that ends up being the case, if we do this and it comes back and we you know raised half as much as what the auction did, I think that's going to be pretty damning for this approach. Right. right? And, I, and I don't think that you're going to see us stand up at the next commission meeting to try to say, give us another chance. Right. You know, because what's most important here is we, may, we raise as much money as possible for mule deer. Right. Right. That's what we want to do. That's the start and end of this That's thing. the start and the end. Right. And my goal, our goal, is to prove that it works and then to make sure that others like Mule Deer Foundation, who are the ones that have traditionally gotten this tag that they use at their hunt expo in Utah – to, to auction off, maybe it will get them to look at this and say, hmm, that's intriguing. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we don't have to give our wildlife, you know, the opportunity to hunt our wildlife to just the person who can afford it right. or afford the most, right? Maybe maybe we should look at doing a raffle like Montana BHA did. Right. That's our goal. Our right. goal is not to take this away from other, you know, really deserving conservation orgs. Um, our goal is to, to send a message, not just, you know, for this situation here in Montana, but elsewhere that like, hey, Things have changed, you know. People can, people sitting, you know, in front of their computers in Pennsylvania can buy a raffle ticket. They don't need to go to, you know, Salt Lake City to attend this event and have, you know, thirty five thousand dollars, right? Yeah. To 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 bid on something like this, and that's that's the sort of money we're talking about here. Like right. this one tag, um, I think in the last ten years it's averaged around twenty six thousand dollars. Okay, I was going to ask. And, yeah, in two of the last three years. It, it netted $41,000. Wow. So we certainly have our work cut out for us to show that this is a viable alternative, but I'm confident that 
people will be excited to finally have the opportunity to put their name in the hat. Right. Um, to be able to support mule deer conservation work, right? To have that earmark for this, which is unlike anything else they do. So when people say hunting is conservation because I buy a license, because I, you know, go through four boxes of shells at the range, and so I'm I'm funding PR efforts too. Those are those are true. But what you're not doing in any of that is funding mule deer conservation work specifically. specifically yeah. This does that. And so our hope is that people will want to help us prove that this is a, an alternative to the auction model, that they're going to want to put their name in the hat, that they're going to want to chip in, you know, the 20 bucks that they can for mule deer conservation. And we're hoping that it turns out to be a success. So if anyone wants to enter that, we encourage you to do so. You can just Google Montana BHA mule deer raffle. Uh, if you go to our Instagram page, which is just Montana BHA, you know, it's, it's linked there in our bio. But it's going, I believe, through the end of April. So folks have a little bit more time yeah. to, to put their name in the hat. But um, that's that's our thinking with it. And hopefully we can we can show our other conservation partners that it's it's an alternative worth considering. Yeah, you think the glimmer of hope for just, you know, regular old Joe Hunter out there, you know, proves to be, you know, enough to get a ton of people interested in it. But back, you know, sticking with mule deer, um, how does BHA see the state of mule deer um, in Montana? I guess for that matter, elk. Um, but, you know, for folks who are kind of in the know on Montana wildlife, uh, mule deer are having kind of a tough time. Um, how do you guys see that? Do you see, you know, possible solutions to that? Do you recognize the same issue? We do. And, you know, specifically in region six and seven, I think mule deer are really hurting, you know, central eastern Montana. And, you know, this is one that FWP, to their credit, are are fully, like, we have their ear, you know. Mm -hmm. They just ended a, a call for applicants. I think they had over 300 applicants for what I think they're going to do is like a 12-person mule deer advisory group. Right, I saw that. Yep, and so we we helped kind of put the word out for that, trying to get people who are passionate about this to, to put their name in the hat and, and be one to, um, you know, volunteer their time to help explore some solutions. We've recently seen the... Uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission here ban the opportunities for hunting mule deer does mm -hmm. on public lands in both regions six and seven, just to kind of show you where we're at. Um, last last session, there were a number of bills. Some some, you know, actually made it to the governor's desk. Some didn't. That were all kind of about mule deer hunting, and you know, one that did is it it limited the number of mule deer does that non-residents can hunt to mm -hmm. one or two. I believe, depending on what license they had to, you know, to accompany that. Mm -hmm. And because before that, I think they could shoot something like seven, you yeah. know, and, and Montanans can too. And, you know, if you, if you play these districts, right, again, having region six and seven kind of say no now definitely reduces those opportunities. But the point being that they recognized hunters impacts and some of the mule deer woes we're seeing, but where BHA's at, again, we're not the group that's, you know, we didn't weigh in on the region six and seven mule deer doe closure. Um, we we kind of look at our the biologists and say, we, we yield the floor to you, right? right. That's kind of how we, we look at those. But what we have done and what we will continue to do is fight for conservation funding, fight for, you know, funding for disease tracking and prevention. We want to do as much as we can to educate our hunters on CWD management and how we stop the spread and how we, how we get a, you know, get that under wraps as, as best we can. Um, 
you know, there's other diseases that we'd love to see addressed as well. But really, you know, for us, it's it's about the habitat and making sure that we have the opportunities we want once we kind of draw those those tags. The, where it gets really complicated, though, is what, you know, what do those legislative or regulatory solutions look like mm-hmm. and where what's our role in those? And I think our role is really more of like an educating for our people and saying, hey, this is being considered. Go ahead and, and speak up because, you know, we're not the group that's going to stand up there and be advocating for, you know, most likely I don't see us advocating for things like antler point restrictions or or big changes to season structures and things like that. Because really what all of those are attempting to do isn't necessarily to address herd health. It's more so to address a certain hunter user group's preference on how they want their mule deer hunting experience to be. Whether that's they want to go out there and, and, and hunt for two weeks looking for that 170-inch buck and not see anybody else out there. Or, you know, if it's the, the mule deer, um, you know, camp tradition where three families – share, you know, a bunch of wall tents and that's how they have their Thanksgiving every year. Um, or it's the, you know, the meat hunter that he goes out and shoots the first legal deer he can because he's just insistent on, on eating venison. Right. You know, all of those people are, are our people, right? They're, they're people that value fair chase, that value um, our wild public lands. Um, and so we don't feel necessarily like obligated to speak up on a lot of these you know, little minor changes to what we do about mule deer, but we certainly want to elevate the conversation and have it because we think it's really important. Right. But we're not going to claim to have the answers. We just hope that other people get engaged they can. Because honestly, like if you were to go off of what we hear from our small circles, which I think are really passionate mule deer hunters who have the time to get out there and are looking for a mature deer, you mm-hmm. know, those sentiments are very different than what we see, you know, from FWP surveys which is from the general Montana hunting population. And then there's a whole nother group of people that are saying, well, don't trust those surveys. They're, you know, they're misleading and people don't even know what they're being asked and all that. And I think there may be a little bit of that, but the numbers are pretty, pretty overwhelming, like that we want our opportunities. And, you know, there's been questions where they frame it and just say, hey, would you rather sit out a year or two with an opportunity to harvest a good mature deer or have the opportunity to hunt in the same place every single year that you're used to? And overwhelmingly Montanans are saying we want, we want the ability to hunt. And so it's really hard for us to come in and say, no, majority of Montana hunters, you're wrong. This is the way to do it. Especially when there's not like a biological justification. It's all about social, social, social quality of hunt preference. Right. And so, and and who are we to say that this guy out there looking for a mule deer doe, his perception of quality hunt is different. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and also like, there's a lot of people like, you and I, Tom, have young kids at home. It's yep. a lot harder for us to get out, right? Mm-hmm. And so we may have a weekend. That's it, right? Right. We don't want to give that up, but we also don't want to have that pressure to to hold out for you know a six year old deer. Like that's sometimes right. not possible. And 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 I wouldn't like it if someone told me that that has to happen, especially if the herd's doing fine. Right. In some places they're not doing fine, and something has to happen. Mm-hmm. And hunting opportunity and hunters have to be a part of that equation, and we have to be willing to look in the mirror and say, all right what's best for the resource. But most of it is not that clear. It's mostly about like the social desires of hunters. And that's where it gets really, really complicated. Right. And difficult to regulate and, and, you know, develop policy around those social issues. It's certainly hard to keep everybody happy. Yeah. You know, especially when, when the justification isn't there. Now, what they just did in region six and seven, you know, there appears to be some biological justification. Um, 
trying to, you know, increase CWD prevention efforts, we'll 100% support that, right? Trying to create more concert or more uh, funding for mule deer conservation with this raffle tag, that's, that's where, you know, our focus is. Trying to make sure that uh, Habitat Montana conservation easements are, are a useful um, option for people to make sure that mule deer habitat is being protected and migration corridors are being protected. Um, absolutely, that's, that's where our focus is. But whether we should be hunting mule deer in the rut, you know, whether hunters should have to pick a season or a weapon here in Montana, those uh, the, like seem a little bit outside of our expertise to, to speak on behalf of our membership on. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's a tough one. I would hate to be an FWP shoes to try to balance all this right. stuff because they're not going to keep everybody happy. And I can promise you, no matter what they do, they're going to have um, probably more than half people upset with them. You know? Right, yeah. right. So thanks, Kevin. Um, I guess uh, that's kind of all I got for you. I'm just wondering, you know, do you have any final thoughts, anything that Montana hunters and anglers should know? Yeah, I guess you also asked about elk. Mm. And so just briefly on elk, you know, the, the issues there are just a little bit different than what we're seeing with mule deer. There, mm-hmm. it's, it's really more of like a distribution issue. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that a little bit with the commercialization, privatization, right. you know, exclusive access conversation. But there's also something I think that hunters should be aware of happening right now where the United Property Owners of Montana is suing Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and, and how they manage elk and what options they offer for landowners. And, and if they're victorious in that, it's really going to upend wildlife management as we know it in Montana. So I encourage people to, to learn more about that and check it out because it, it does have significance. Um, you could, there's a website that has more information about it called uh, keepelkpublic.org. Um, and then, you know, to answer your closing question, I would encourage people to, um, to learn more about BHA, you know, follow us on Instagram, Montana BHA. Uh, there's ways to sign up to our mailing list on our website. You don't need to just jump the gun and become a BHA member and give us 35 bucks a year. We'd love for you to do that. But more importantly, just, just try to like use your voice, you know, and that's what we do is we try to educate people. We try to give them the tools to go be advocates. And we recognize that Montana hunters, um, you know, we really, if we're going to make a difference, like hunters in general, not just Montana hunters, but we are overwhelmed and outnumbered in terms of the non-hunting public. And if we are going to be able to protect the things we love, I don't think we're going to do so by making half of this country, you know, become hunters. Mm -hmm. But I think the way we do it is take the 5% of the country who do hunt and make sure every single one of those knows how to successfully advocate for wild lands, for migration corridors, for habitat funding, for those sort of things. So we kind of punch above our weight class. And that to me is, is how we protect our hunting heritage and our fishing heritage. Um, so along those lines, yeah, please learn more about BHA. Reach out if you have any questions. We are doing our big annual party this year in Minneapolis. It's a really fun time. Um, lots of seminars, lots of vendors, a uh, lot of kind of unique events, cook-offs, calling competitions. Right. Um, it's just, it's a blast. Uh, there's things for kids to do. Um, it's going to be great fun. So yeah, um, a lot going on, but I've been here long enough to know that we can make a difference. And it's, it's important that hunters don't kind of don't feel like their voice doesn't matter because it really does. I mean, mm-hmm. I've sat in enough hearings and commission meetings to see where three educated people, you know, can stand up 
and change the entire course of the conversation. Right. So that's one nice thing about Montana is that we are still kind of a small population state, right? And um, I think just a few people speaking up on these things can really make a big difference. And with that, the one thing I would say in closing is that it's it's an election year, you know, and, and someone once told me that 90% of the decisions um, based on hunting and fishing and conservation and those sort of things, you know, happen on election day. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of stuck with me over the years. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So, you know, make sure that folks listening are, you know, engaged and educated on who they're voting for. And I'm not just talking about the top of the ballot, but, you know, all those land board seats that we talked about, make sure you're voting for people that are going to be willing to give the green light when a good project comes across the land board. Um, and look down, you know, down ballot too to your local representatives and, and, and senators and see kind of where they stand on these things. What what does their voting record look like? BHA is a 501c3. We can't endorse. We don't endorse. Um, but we certainly can talk about what's happened in the past and, and hope that people can, um, you know, take that information and look forward and, and have some local conversations with their people too. That's another thing is that it's amazing how approachable our local um, representatives are and, you know, they'll sit down and have coffee or a beer with you, and you can let them know. They may not agree with you, but it's it's a great way to meet the people who represent you in Montana. We have the luxury to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Montana Untamed is a podcast from the newsrooms of Lee Enterprises Montana Newspapers. Visit any of our websites or subscribe wherever podcasts are found. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.